Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. All right, we've had a good morning. I feel like we should call it a day, but uh, it's my turn, so nope. Okay, uh, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3, so you can flip open to Titus 3. You can click open there on your phone uh, if you would, and we are going to finish the book of Titus today because next week, uh, I mean, it's December, so we've got to talk about Christmas next week, right? Um, and so uh, this room will look completely different. We'll have trees, and we'll have Christmas music, and we'll have lights, and we'll do all of the things. Uh, just as one more thing, I know some of you like to to maybe help us decorate and that sort of thing. Tuesday at 1, if you find yourself free and you want to take a long lunch break, we wouldn't mind you coming over and helping us. But that's when we'll be decorating because I know some of you were curious about that. But Titus chapter 3, one of the things that I've really loved about, uh, about the book of Titus as we've walked through it is that um, this really is kind of an unfiltered version of the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul, um, he writes a lot of letters. He wrote to, to Corinth a number of times. He wrote to the church in Ephesus, which is where Ephesians is from. Wrote to Colossae, wrote a whole bunch of different places, right? Um, and, but then he wrote these other couple letters. They're called the pastoral epistles, or two letters, or three letters rather, that he wrote, one to Titus and two to, uh, to Timothy. And so in these letters, we kind of get an unfiltered version of the Apostle Paul. Um, and the reason for that is when I am communicating to you, even as Ellen and I were standing here talking about our financial situation, when we are sitting here talking about that, we're choosing our words, we're making sure we don't offend anybody or anything like that. When Ellen and I are in my office talking about it or stewardship talking about it, we're just talking about the bottom line, right? Where, what do we need to do to make sure that people are continuing to faithfully give? Where do we need to cut? Where do we, like all of those conversations are necessary at a time. This is kind of what we see with Paul and Titus, right? Paul is kind of cutting through a lot, of the, a lot of the fat and is just saying like, hey, look, these are the things that we really need to take care of. These are the things that, that need to be done. And so that's largely what we've seen in the book of Titus. It's kind of like an unfiltered version of, uh, of Paul. And as we go into this last section, Paul is going to start encouraging Titus, kind of like a father figure, a little bit like a mentor, if you will. Okay, he's going to tell them the truth. He's going, to be, he's going to be very honest with them, but at the same time, he is going to tell them the why behind it. It's not just, hey, I need you to follow these rules for the sake of following these rules. It's, I need you to follow these rules because. And that's what we're going to get to in just a second. But the way he talks here really does remind me a little bit of the way uh, that my dad used to encourage people. My dad wasn't, um, wasn't that guy who would like at Thanksgiving dinner would stand up and clink his glass and wait for everybody to look and, you know, say like, I'll wait to the kids who are the adults rather who were talking or whatever, right? Like he wasn't that guy. He wasn't an attention seeker or anything like that. Um, my dad actually did all of his encouragement from a recliner, but not just any recliner, a very specific recliner. A recliner that always, regardless of how the living room was set up, had to be directly in front of the TV. Couldn't be at an angle, right? Some of you know the recliner that I'm talking about right now. Some of you gentlemen in here know what I'm talking about right here. But so it had to be directly facing the TV. And then next to it, it always had to have some sort of side table. You couldn't just have a, a recliner on, a, on an island by its own. It had to have the side table next to it for his Diet Coke and his burnt popcorn, which he always ate for whatever reason. Okay? And then beyond that, and the most importantly, that recliner, a lot of work had to be put into making sure that the right indentation was found in that recliner. 
Some of you get that, the indentation in the recliner, in case some of you are like, am I allowed to laugh at that joke in church? Okay, so, um, but in that recliner, so I remember my dad would come in, he would sit down after work, he did the weirdest things, he would untie his shoes and flip them around on his feet so his heels were on his toes and flip his shoes up and down like this, and uh, he would always say, hey, Pete, come here. He called me Pete. Pete, come here. So I'd go over and sit on the couch uh, next to him. He would sit there and he would encourage me, encourage me from his recliner. Right? He would tell me things that were difficult for me to hear, but at the same time, he would do it in such a gracious and a loving way because he had put the effort in to make sure that I knew that he cared about me. Like he, he had that space to speak truth into my life. And it wasn't just me as his son. I remember numerous Thanksgivings where like my cousins would be over. I remember one time in particular, I had a cousin come over and she had graduated high school. She was like 20, 21. She wasn't going to college. She also didn't have work. She just didn't really have a path forward, didn't know where she was going. And my dad calls her over. He never went to them. It was like, hey, come over to the recliner, right? Um, and uh, he sat and he talked with her and, and he pushed her and he provided truth to her. But at the same time, like he did it in a loving and a gracious way and said, hey, this is why I care. This is why it is I'm saying the things that I am. Some of you probably have that type of person in your life or maybe some of you are that person uh, to others in life that you speak with as an authority figure and someone who deeply cares maybe about the trajectory of your life or, or, or you care about the trajectory of someone else's. And this is what Paul seems to be doing with Titus in this last chapter. See, Paul is speaking very authoritatively, not because he wants to get the glory or anything like that, but because he cared deeply about Titus's life. He cared deeply about the work that needed to be done for the sake of the gospel in Crete. Right? That's, that, was the, that was the goal of this whole thing. Okay? Because Paul, though, even though he, he, he loves Titus and, and he surely cares about Titus, Paul's biggest concern, though, wasn't Titus's feelings. Paul's biggest concern is how the gospel was actually going to be represented in an area of the world that is marked by lawlessness and an area of the world that was marked by rebellion. It's kind of what Cretans were known for. That's why when you hear that word Cretan, they're actually talking about people from Crete. So when I said at the beginning of this series that, that the book of Titus could have been written for modern day, I wasn't joking. We live in an era where the culture seems to exalt sin and dishonor God in a very real way. There tends to be an, an increasingly militant mood against those of us who maybe hold godly moral standards. And so I, I want to pause here for a second, though, and just remind us that it's very easy in a message like this where we're talking about morality, where we're talking about society, we're talking about how the gospel is represented and that sort of thing, for us to point fingers outside the walls of the church and say, yes, you're right, that society is messed up. Those people outside the church walls are messed up. Let me remind you, Christians, we do not have a moral high ground. All of us are sinners. All of us are messed up. All of us continue to fall short. The only difference is, is that we recognize that there is a Savior and we have committed our lives to Him. That's the only high ground that you have, and it has nothing to do with you. And that's what Paul largely is going to get into here. 
Because even today, like I was saying, there tends to be like this mood kind of a, a against moral standards. How is it that the church should, should respond to that? Should, should the church organize? Maybe we should be a brand new political party. We could be like the Jesus Christ party or something like that and, and, and do something that. Or should we stage protests against forces of evil in our community or, 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 or whatever it is? We tend to, to think that we can make inroads in other directions when really what God has called us to is living to a standard of life that is going to make the gospel attractive. That's what God has called us to. And I'm not trying to get down on, on, on government or anything like that. Like there's a legitimate place in a democratic government to, to seek to pass laws that uphold biblical standards. There's a biblical place to be able to protest and all of those things. But something we have to remember, that what our perverted and, and sinful society needs is the gospel. And the gospel alone can change human hearts, not political parties, not protests. The gospel alone. And so Paul's answer to, to this evil in the world is that we need to live in godly lives to show it. We need to excel in, in good works that display God's grace through us. The change lives then of believers will provide the platform for witness that then points to other, points other sinners to God's grace in the gospel of Jesus. Right? So our good works, though not necessary to be able to get into heaven, are necessary though for other people to be able to recognize the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's where, that's where Paul is landing on it. So we're in chapter 3. We're going to do one through, uh, 1 through 11 here. It says this, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. Okay, verses 1 and 2 right here is Paul saying, hey, this is how you need to react to a godless society. These two verses, this is what you need to be able to do. Verse 3, this is, here comes the why. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because those are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Okay, so here we can recognize, we can pull things out of here that's like, yep, that's our culture. Yep, that's our culture. Yep, that's where we live. And we like, like I said, to kind of point outwardly. Let's look inwardly for the rest of this message, okay? Allow the Spirit to pierce your heart a little bit and recognize where it is, what it is that you need to hear. Because a lot like you, back in the day, the Cretan church, like this is not news to them. 
they would have understood these things already. They had already been taught these things, but as kind of the wise sage here, the encourager here, Paul felt the need to remind those people listening to the basic, basic ways they needed to, to behave in relation to, to this godless world. William Barclay is a theologian. He wrote, the Cretans were notoriously turbulent and quarrelsome and impatient of all authority. Right? Like, hey, look, these people are jacked up. They're lawless. They're godless. They don't know what's happening. Polybius, he's a Greek historian, said to them that they were constantly involved in insurrections, murder, and internecine wars. Hey, these people, they are ungodly people, unrepentant people, have no need for God people. And so when I say that this letter could be applied then to the, the society in which we find ourselves today, it's the truth. We find ourselves in the same situation. And so Paul then sets a reminder as to how it is that Christians are supposed to live in the world. He provides an outline for it in verses 1 and 2, starting with the idea that Christians should be subject then to governing authorities. Okay, this is, this is consistent teaching about how believers must relate to their government. Paul talks about it numerous times. Even, even Paul lived under the tyranny of one of the worst, most godless emperors in the entire world in Nero. And even then, he was like, yep, I need to be subject to that authority. He didn't make, didn't make um, exceptions for godless governments. And even though back in the day there was still, you know, bribery going on, there's corruption going on in the government, which I'm glad, by the way, that we've cleared up by now. I mean, isn't that great that there's no more bribery or corruption in government? Not all of you laughed, and that's concerning to me. Um, anyway, but Paul didn't specify that the government has to be free of corruption before these principles apply. He simply said, hey, look, you need to be subject to this government. And even though at the time, right, they weren't close to being Christian, Paul didn't say that these commands only apply if you live in a Christian-based government. The only time, hear me, the only time that believers are required to disobey a secular government is when the government commands us to do something that would require us to disobey God. That's it. So if you're like, I'm going to protest by not paying my taxes. Sorry, it's the law. But at that point, Acts 5.29 says, we must obey God rather than men. That's what it says. And then be okay then, hear me, that doesn't absolve you from having to go to prison because you're like, hey, I listen to God's not a lot yours, sorry. Like you have to be okay then with the punishment that happens from that government. So in whatever capacity that we decide that we may be involved, you personally may be involved in the political process, you need to keep your witness as a Christian though as the uppermost importance in your mind and in your actions. If you are marked more by the fact that you are a Democrat or you are a Republican than you are by being a Christian, then you have it wrong. If people look at you, if people interact with you, and they are more easily convinced about what your political party is rather than who your belief and faith is in, you're doing it wrong. If they're looking at your Facebook posts and they can more readily identify what political party you align with, then what savior you have received into your heart that you're doing it wrong. Paul is very, very clear about all of this. 
And so if we posture ourselves as enemies of unbelievers in, that people that we are trying to reach are eventually going to alienate them from the gospel and that they need to hear. So our, our, Paul says then, our, our witness requires us to be subject to rulers and authority. That doesn't mean, hear me, that doesn't mean you can't voice strong opinions. That doesn't mean you're, you, you can't disagree or even do everything lawful to try to get officials removed from office. But we need to show respect for them as officials and, and, and as individuals. We should obey the laws of our society unless those laws require us to disobey the law of God. So he goes on to say then after that, hey, you need to be obedient. Okay, you have to be obedient. Paul doesn't specify here who it is that we're supposed to be obedient to. Context clues will tell us he's talking about government, that we shouldn't be lawbreakers. We shouldn't uh, form a rebellion. We shouldn't form a revolution except in the most maybe extreme circumstances. And so let's keep moving through. Because Paul says all of this to remind them, the people in Crete, and to remind Titus specifically that we were all ungodly people once as well. So we need to behave then as godly people towards them. We need to remember then that, that before we met Christ, we acted the same way as these people do. Look at verse 3. Because Paul provides a list of attributes in verse 3 about all of the things that we used to be. He talks about the unbelievers. Man, we used, to, we used to live for ourselves. And that's all we used to know how to do before we met Jesus. We lived for ourselves. Right? We used to, you know, do whatever it is that, that, that felt good. He says here that, that, that we're foolish, that we were without spiritual wisdom or understanding. Romans uh, uh, 1, 21 talks about that, that we, we vainly thought that we were wise, but we were actually fools, right? Academia gets, gets lost, lost in this all of the time, that they have somehow outthought the creator of the universe in some way, which is absolutely foolish, but he goes on to say, not just that we were foolish, we were also disobedient. We didn't obey God. We only obeyed the laws of our, our government when it was convenient or when we feared the consequences of, of getting caught. We were, we were living for ourselves and whatever it is that, that furthered our interests. We hated the thought of, of submission or obedience to any authority, including God. Look at our society and tell me that is not still true. The idea of submission to a greater authority being obedient. But beyond that, we were deceived, is what Paul says. That we didn't understand spiritual truth. And because of that, we were, we were led astray by the enemy. We thought that we were wise to believe in the idea of, of macro evolution. We thought we were wise and sophisticated to throw off God's standards of moral purity for the sake of freedom. We thought that we could find happiness and fulfillment through the lust of the flesh or by buying more things or, or, or filling that void that you have. We thought that we could violate God's law without any consequences, but Scripture says that we were deceived. Paul keeps going. We were slaves to our own sin. Sin, like drugs, I mean, it enslaves the one who dabbles with it. It enslaves us all at some point. And so Paul is reminding them, hey, look, I, I, know, I know that you are free in Christ now. I know that you've put on those brand new clothes and those pearly white clothes that, that, because Jesus has washed all of those sins away and congratulations, but do not forget that this is where you came from and not just this is where you came from, this is who you still are. 
But Jesus covered it up for you. Jesus has taken care of it for you. Paul goes on to say, he said, we, we lived our lives in malice. Malice, is, it means ill will towards other people. It stems from this idea of, of selfishness and kind of wanting your own way. Some of you were malicious on Thursday and you didn't even know it because they said it's time for food and you guys jumped in line first. Gotcha, you malicious people. But he talks about that idea. If you have to, if to lie, if you have to, you know, do whatever it may be, lie about somebody to try to get them in trouble because, because hey, I, I, I am the man. I want to be the center of everything. If to cheat someone out of something to get what you want, that's being malicious. Paul keeps going. He says, hey, you used to be envious of other people. Envy means wanting something that, that, that someone else has or desiring to be in the position that they are in. Can I tell you one of the most, I mean, I think for sure it's one of the biggest sins of pastors is envy, especially in today's day and age. Like back in the past, w- without the internet and without like TV or anything like that, like I could just assume that, man, we had the best church in the entire world, right? And, uh, sorry, we do have the best church in the entire, I'm sorry I said that, everybody. You guys are like, What? But it is so easy now for me and all of you as well to log online, to get onto Facebook or go to whatever website you want and listen to the greatest worship music and the style that you want to hear and the, the, the funniest and most theologically sound pastor that you've ever listened to in your entire life. And I do the same thing and I think to myself, man, we are not nearly as good as all of those other people. Why would anybody keep showing up here to listen to me? Why would anybody keep showing up here to listen to our worship pastor? I mean, their worship pastor has hair, you know what I mean? I did it last service, I had to do it again, man, I'm sorry. It's a Holy Spirit thing. Um, I was just kidding. But that envy, I mean, it creeps in, like it comes from everywhere, and that's who, not, not just who we used to be, it's the sin that we continue to struggle with. And then beyond all that, Paul says, beyond all that, you are also hateful. And a lot of us probably wouldn't admit that we're hateful people, like that would be hard for us to be able to admit, like, no, I'm not hateful, I love everybody, I'll hold doors for old ladies, like I am, I am not a hateful person, how dare you say that? But hatred is essentially self-centeredness and disregard for other people. That's, that's what, what hatred is. If someone hurts me, I'm going to hold that grudge rather than be willing and able to forgive that person. Or if I say, I don't ever want to talk to that person again, there is hatred in that. So it doesn't take like this outward, outward trying to hurt or, or kill someone. We are all marked by hatred before it is that we came to Christ because we all lived for ourselves. And we were indifferent towards other people unless they could meet our needs. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, hey, well, I was never like that terrible description in verse 3. Okay, I was a, I was a good moral person. I grew up in, in the church. I grew up, my parents always told me what to do. I said my pleases and my thank yous. I, I held the doors when I was supposed to hold the doors. I got good marks in school. I never got, I never got sent to the principal's office. Even my nickname at the time was the voice of reason. Like, like I, was a good, I was a good moral person person. But at a heart level, all of us are the same. All of us are depraved. All of us are sinful. And Paul was reminding Titus of that. Hey, you are, every single one of you is sinful. 
And maybe, like I said, you did have that, that good moral upbringing. But my guess is your sin at the time was probably restrained because of your circumstances rather than your relationship with Jesus. So your parents kind of kept your, your sin in check. Or your teachers kept your sin in check or whatever it may have been. But if you know your heart as God sees it, as God recognizes our hearts, you, you, every single one of these sins is lurking just below the surface at some point. And, and the truth is at some, like at the, at the heart level, every single one of the, the Ten Commandments we have, we have violated. And some of you are like, that's not true. I've never hoped to murder anyone. Read Matthew 5, 21 to 30. It talks about anger is murder in God's sight. So all of us, that's our, that's our spiritual condition. Lust is adultery. I've never cheated on my wife. Yeah, but you've lusted over. So we've all stolen. We've all lied. We've all coveted. We all have practiced hypocrisy, trying to impress other people as to say, hey, I'm, I'm not quite as good as I actually am, but I'm going to put on this show to make you assume that. So why then is verse 3 in our text? Because it looks like all Paul is doing is like, hey, man, you guys are, you guys are a bunch of garbage. It looks like that's all what Paul is saying. And so being a, a, an encouragement to Titus, why would Paul then be like, hey, remember how, how terrible you are? Remember where, remember where you came from? And it's there because Paul knows that in order for us to act with love and good deeds towards these unbelievers who maybe mistreat you, who maybe malign you, who maybe falsely accuse you, we need Remember that we used to be just like they are. We're made from the same stuff, every single person. We would still be acting like that except for one thing, that it is God's grace and mercy that changed us. Not your good works, not how nice your smile is, not being voted most likely to succeed in high school, none of those things. By God's grace. And that's why verses four through seven, they really land the plane for Titus. Verses four and five, it contains one of the most glorious buts in all of Scripture. Cool. It says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, these verses, they, they give the basis, they give the cause, rather, of, of our salvation. The cause of our salvation is God's kindness, it's God's love, it's God's mercy, these verses, they give the effects of our salvation. It talks about regeneration, renewal. It talks about justification. We're justified by faith. They give us the means then even of our salvation, the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ. Like that's how it is that we are saved. And then they give us the goal of our salvation, the hope of eternal life. These verses right here is the why this is why we do it. The clear thrust of four through seven is that this salvation was not due to anything good in us, but rather it is totally due to God's abundant mercy and God's abundant grace. We were just as Paul describes in verse three, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to sin. There is nothing in us that deserves salvation. To the contrary, actually. 
Scripture's clear. We deserve God's wrath and we deserve God's judgment. That's hard. That's a hard one to talk about. No one likes talking about that, like what we actually deserve. But I don't think you can fully appreciate what Christ did unless you understand what it is that you deserved in the first place. But because of God's great kindness, his love, and his mercy, he saved us. So in all this, Paul's point is, not just to point out some good, solid theological truths, but Paul's point is, is if you received mercy when you deserved judgment, then show God's kindness, love, and mercy to unbelievers who don't believe it. In the same way that God showed you mercy when you didn't deserve it, now it's your turn. You get to show kindness and love and mercy to those people who do not deserve it. That's where Paul's at with this, though. This entire thing, this entire book of the Bible. Everything is pointing to this. Show kindness and grace to people who do not deserve to, show, to, to, to know your kindness and grace. We think to ourselves, but they don't deserve it. Yeah, neither do you. And we forget that. John Newton, some of you may know this guy, he's a drunken sailor. You guys are like, how would I know that guy? He's also the author of Amazing Grace. He's a drunken sailor, he's a terrible slave trader, terrible person overall. But by God's grace, he became a preacher and what we all care more about now, uh, a hymn writer. And this guy, he wrote a text in bold letters and put it over the mantle in his study. And of course, in the King James Version at the time, in Deuteronomy 15, 15. And he put it over there so it would remind him regularly, not just where he came from, but who redeemed him. Deuteronomy 15, 15 in the King James Version says, Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. I was in bondage in the land of Egypt. And the Lord thy God redeemed me, and God redeemed me. Not because of anything that they did. Not because of anything that he did. He remembered he was a slave. He wasn't actually a slave in Egypt. He was in bondage to his sin. And the only reason that he was delivered from it is because of God. It had nothing to do with who he was. Paul gives us this incredibly gracious reminder that God has shown us great mercy, and in light of that, show God's mercy to a lost, rebellious world by your godly behavior and your good deeds. Your good deeds aren't to get you into heaven. You can smile at as many people as you want. You're not getting into heaven because of your smile. It's only because of God. So why, the, why then does this matter to us if Paul is writing to Titus for people in Crete? I believe the church gets too caught up in drawing lines between who is in and who is out. I think we get too caught up in, in imposing our morality onto a world rather than being willing to recognize that we are, we are still sinful people Thankful for a Savior, but still sinful people. The only difference between us and everyone else out there is that Jesus has redeemed us. That Jesus saw us in our filth. He saw us reveling in our sin, doing the things that we thought would bring us fulfillment. And when, when we responded to the Spirit by saying yes to His call on our lives, we were able to pull off kind of those, those old sinful clothes that I talked about and put on the, the new clothes that Christ has given each and every one of us. But here's the reality. 
those new clothes that we get, they get dirty again every single day. We still sin. We're still conniving. We're still liars. We're still hypocrites. And, and, and the only difference is, is that when that happens, when we sin, when we continue to go back, like the Scripture says, like a dog to its vomit, back to our sin, we get to be broken then before God. And we get to say, hey, God, I, I, I am sorry, and, and I repent of this sin, and I'm broken. I want to do my best, God, to not do that again. Help me, God. Be gracious to me, God. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his blood. Thank you for what he did on the cross so I don't have to bear the penalty of that sin, and I want to represent you better from this point forward. That's what we get to do over and over and over again. Let me be clear again. No one in here has the moral high ground. Not even Paul. Paul, he, I mean, Paul says in his letters on a regular basis, like we, we're all sinners, chief of which is me, the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, called himself the chief sinner. He recognized that because he recognized where it is that he came from. But he also recognized that he is redeemed and renewed by the blood of Jesus and by his blood alone, nothing else. So I really want to hit this point home. One of the things that we've been trying to do more regularly here is when we have a sermon series, we want to show a story of someone who has really embodied or lived something in that series. And so we'll kind of wrap up with this. I'll have some words after this. But, but one of the things that we've been driving towards, and this continues to be true, is that what you believe should dictate your actions. Not just what you understand, because when you understand something, that doesn't mean that your actions are going to follow suit. But when you believe something, your actions should follow suit. That's what Paul was talking about here the majority of the time in Titus. He's saying, hey, look, if you say you believe these things, in order to make the gospel look more attractive, do these things. It's almost like he had the word hypocrite lined up for us all along. Right? So that's what, that's what we've been driving towards. Your belief should dictate your actions. And so to hit this point home, we have, we have a video we're going to show you. It's our very own Rebecca Pollock. And Rebecca, she's, she's a, young, a young woman in our church who had to live and walk through something really, really difficult. But in the midst of that, her belief continued to dictate her action. Why don't you show that video? So my name is Rebecca Pollock. Um, I was born in a Christian family. I was dedicated a couple of days old. Um, spent my whole life in the church. I went to a Christian school from kindergarten through high school mostly. And my parents were very good at wanting to serve other people. And so we used to have a home church and we used to on Sunday mornings after church, we would go and feed the homeless with like the people in our church. and. Um, even just seeing the way that my dad treats my mom and seeing how much he loves her partly shows me how I want to be treated in a future relationship, but also just kind of that example of like how much God loves us and that my dad was always a good example of just like that. Loving someone so much you would do anything for them and putting your own wants to the side. It was the summer before my senior year and um, I had it's kind of been a place where I yeah, knew a lot about God and I had a relationship with him, but I really wanted it to be like 
a daily thing where he was a part of every part of my life, not just like the school part or just the whatever. So I started doing devotions with a girl in my class who I wasn't super close with. So that was the, the time where my relationship with God grew the closest. Um, but then it was challenged the most at the beginning of my senior year. Um, that same friend who I'd been doing devotions with, we, she was diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma, which is a type of cancer. And she, stage four, um, it had gone into her lungs. It started in her foot, it was in her lungs now. And we prayed together just to kind of, I mean, that's what we were doing all summer. That was how our relationship was, is we prayed through everything and it was all about how is God working in our life? And so in that moment, yeah, there was a lot of prayer, but it was scary. <laughs> yeah, it was scary. I had no idea what the future held for me um, or her. And so we talked through a lot, kind of like what our plan was going to be from there on. And she told me that, you know, they wanted her to stop going to school and to, um, you know, stop playing all her sports. She was talking about that. And in that moment, I definitely felt like God was telling me that. I was supposed to do it with her. And I pretty much moved into her house and went to all her appointments with her. Um, she ended up starting her treatment in LA. And so that was lots of weeks spent in LA doing treatment. And I would say it was definitely the hardest year of my life, but it was also one of the funnest years of my life. Like there was so much joy. There were so many like little moments or, you know, it was a weird juxtaposition, the whole back and forth, just like the depressing moments all of a sudden to the joy. But it, um, yeah, God was very faithful in just continuing to show us that He loved us even, yeah, through appointments or whatever. There have been a lot of times through the whole process in my life in general where I really like to have control. I like to do what I want to do and, you know, God can work his way with it. You know, I'll start something and be like, all right, God, help me out. Like, not what do you want me to do, but um, yeah. And just, I really liked being in control. And we tried to do like one last trip before chemo started, before she started feeling sick, just wanted to do a thing. And it had been ruined because she got sick a little early and they had to do an emergency chemo and start it before we were able to do that. I just kind of started talking to God and I was praying to him and I just broke down crying and I was just like, God, I can't do anything. I can't control anything. I don't have any say in what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if she's going to be alive next week. Like I was just so like distraught almost because I was just, I had no control over my life, which I always craved control. And in that moment, you know, I just felt such an overwhelming piece of like, you're okay. <laughs> like, yeah, you're not in control, but I am. And just knowing that he was gonna that he's always been faithful in my life and that he is good and that he does love me and that when he calls you to something, he's not just gonna leave you. <laughs> and so then after she died, I was able to be there for her family more because I had kind of already gone through that. The tears and the freaking out and the whatever before. We don't know what's gonna happen and we're not in control and sometimes God calls you to things that don't make any sense or that are super hard and you're like there's no way like when Sam was diagnosed I was 15 like I had such little grasp on what life even meant I mean I still do I'm 18 right now like I got, haven't grown that much in this amount of time but like I just I had no idea what I didn't even know where I was going to college like I was just I was a senior and just lost obedience is hard <laughs> it is but when you know him and you know his character and you know who he is and 
you know that he's never gonna forsake you in the time when he's called you to. It's incredibly clear in that, that her actions were dictated by her belief. Even as you heard her from the very beginning talking about, I was raised in a Christian home, I was dedicated when I was a few days old, there's a definite shift from, yeah, after we went to church, we went and fed the homeless people, to when I was in high school, I started doing devotions with my friend. Her faith became her own, her belief became her own, and her actions then were dictated from that belief. It's the same thing that Paul was calling us to, and, and Rebecca would tell you that she knows that she's not better than anybody else. She just simply knows that she has a God who took care of it for her. In the same way that each and every one of us have a God who is willing to take care of it for us. So the question then remains is, is what does it look like for the church? What does it look like for us today? And I think the honest answer here is that the church needs to be willing to repent. That the individuals in the church needs to, we, we need to start with repentance. We remind ourselves that, hey, we are made from the same thing that everybody else who is lost in the world is made from. Being willing to repent of pride and malice and envy and hypocrisy and hatred and all of those things that Paul listed church needs to understand that we don't have the moral high ground, we just have a savior. And our job isn't simply to be more moral than everyone else. Our job is to make the gospel attractive to everybody else by being moral. We're not seeking morality. We're seeking Christ. And that's what each and every one of us are called to do. And so as you go from here, we have to remember that you have people in your world, we call them your oikos, those 8 to 15 people that you already know, who should know that you're a Christian, who should know that you are marked by your faith, and that your responsibility from this point forward, from the point really you decided to follow Jesus forward, is to ensure that you are making the gospel attractive to all of them by allowing your belief to dictate your actions. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm, man, I'm thankful for this morning. I'm thankful for uh, baptisms and singing and um, your word and Rebecca and all of, all of the things that we've been encountered this morning. I'm thankful for your spirit being alive and well in this place. And so, God, I pray now that we would indeed repent of those things in our lives that we need to repent of, that sin that we go back to on a consistent basis, even though we know that you've washed it away, even though we know that's no longer who we are, that we love going back to it and going back to it and going back to it. And God, I I repent of those things in my own life. I want to turn away from those things. And so if that's you this morning, that you you need to seek repentance or maybe, maybe you need to seek repentance for the hundredth time. Maybe it's for the first time. Wherever you're at today, 
as we go through the ABCs, as we close the rest of our service, like we do every single week, that you would pray along with, those as, with us as well, that you would be willing to repent of those sins simply by saying, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I repent of those things. Repent of those things that does not make the gospel attractive. So I admit that, Father, but B, I believe that you sent your son to die for me and that's the only reason, it's the only reason I get to be with you one day. It's the only reason I get to be considered righteous is because of your son. And C, I would choose to follow you every single day that I would choose to put on those white clothes that you have given me every single day and that as I dirty them up, I come back to you, Father, and say, God, I am so sorry. I'm broken because of this sin. Renew me. Make me whole. And he's already done it. So thank you for that, Father. And thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.